Matthew 11, verse 28. And Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come to me, all who are tired and weary, and you will find rest. Those words, rest, easy, light. I don't know about you, but those are not generally the words I use to describe my relationship with Jesus. Easy, light, restful. This morning, as we listen to prayer request after prayer request, I assume that for many of us, the situation is, changed, is the same, is that we, we read these words and we think of them as a, as a quaint promise from Jesus, but that in many ways, he's let us down and he's come up short. That externally, our lives don't look all that restful or easy or light. And you're in good company. This is the exact problem that the early church was facing when the writer of Hebrews addressed them. We're talking to a group of people, Jews, who converted to Christianity, maybe under the, the pretense that it was going to be easy and light and restful. And before long, they themselves were being persecuted, their fathers were being killed, and they were ready to turn back. And you know what? Whoever this guy Jesus was, his promise was bunk. It's not light, it's not easy, and it certainly isn't restful. And so we're heading back. We're going back to Judaism. And so the writer of Hebrews, as we've been going through this, we come to chapter 4 today. And he's going to remind them, like he does in every single one of these sections, what you are passing up is something far greater than just religion. Can't, can't just pick and choose here. We're not just talking about external rites and rituals. We're talking about a relationship that you are forfeiting for all of eternity. And so he uses the word today, rest, and repeats it over and over again with this invitation similar to the one Jesus gave. Enter his rest. If you hear his voice today, do not harden your heart. Enter his rest. Enter his rest. Um, Chapter 4 is one of those instances in the scripture where um, whoever put these actual chapter numbers together did a horrible job. And um, it starts with the word, therefore. So if you're reading along, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Obviously, that's a reference to what happened before. So um, I know that Josh covered most of three, and we're going to start a little bit at the end of three just to pick up the pace again and then keep going through, and we'll pick it up in four where we're going to begin today. So we're starting in chapter three, again, uh, at verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold firmly to the end our original conviction. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who are they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all that Moses led out of Egypt and with whom he was angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we have 
So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. And then picking up where we'll start today, therefore. In light of the huge and horrible mistakes that your ancestors make, in light of the story that probably all of you want to forget, he's telling his his, uh, Jewish audience, therefore, he says, in light of what we've learned, since the promise of entering his rest still stands for you now, not your ancestors, but for you now, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who believed. We're going to keep going through chapter 4, but I'll stop it right there. My struggle in the last couple of weeks um, was to come to understand what exactly does that word rest mean. Okay? When we hear it in our cultural context, and even as they heard it in their cultural context, rest means something very specific to us doesn't mean persecution. It doesn't mean death and dying. It doesn't mean martyrdom. Um, it doesn't mean trials and tribulations. And so uh, as they're facing this and as Jesus holds out that promise, if you're tired and weary, you can come to me, you'll find rest. And as God comes to the Israelites and promises them that today, if you hear my voice, you can enter my rest, it caused me to wrestle with that a little bit. What in the world does this word rest mean? So that's what we're going to focus on today. And the writer helps us a little bit. He does it in a very, very strange way. The first thing that he talks about in terms of rest, he refers to creation, a creation account. Um, and it's kind of funny, too, because he doesn't, know, um, he doesn't know the Bible very well. And he says, somewhere it is written. <laughs> and obviously, he didn't live in the age where we had chapters and names of the books and stuff. It wasn't as easy to find things. So he says, for somewhere it is spoken about that on the seventh day, in these words, on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. He's making a very uh, strange argument in some ways by alluding to this idea that in the very, very beginning, if we read the story of Genesis, some of you are familiar with that, some of you aren't. But in short, uh, the Bible tells us that God created the world in six days. And then on the seventh day, he took a break. He rested. Okay? The very first use of this in this chapter, this idea of rest, the thing that we glean from it, the thing that we can understand, and the thing that I, it probably is most obvious to us is the way that the word rest is used throughout most of the scriptures. It's a stop working, cease from work. Very literal. Don't work, right? You're resting, just like the way that we would think about it. But by using the creation account and saying that there is a kind of rest that we can enter into, he puts a little bit of a twist on it. Um, as I've wrestled with this this week, one of the most helpful writers I came across was a man named Watchman Nee. Anybody heard of him before? Great guy. Wrote in a wonderful commentary on Ephesians that start, the name of the title is Sit, Walk, Stand. I don't know if that's what, if everybody's ever read that before. And in that, and in this other uh, passage I was reading from him the other day, he said, let's be clear about this. Let's be clear about this. That God worked for six days. And then created man. And man's first day, all he did was rest. (laughs) All he did was rest. There was nothing else to be done. That man's first act in creation was to simply be with God. That was rest. There was no more work to to do. And in fact, he says, God's act of rest, God certainly isn't weary like we are. It's not a physical kind of rest, but he said rest here helps us understand that God is celebrating. 
And this is God's way of throwing a party, that God gets to the end of his creation and said, this is very, very good. This is wonderful. I did it. Look at this. And then he creates man to come and join the celebration. And the very first thing man has to do is not work, is not toil, is not do anything, but simply stand next to God and be like, this is wonderful. This is wonderful. And so he tells us this right from the very beginning, that there is a kind of rest already that we enter into. Already, from the beginning of creation. And when I think about this idea, how I want to bring it down to to our level here, is this idea that, that our work, our physical work, what we do day in and day out, even that is preceded by God. That we have a tendency, and I think throughout this entire passage, is going to be alluded to that, that we are all forming our own forms of works righteousness. We are all trying to justify ourselves before God. That we want to hurry up and do something, be something, be somebody important. See me, see me, see me, see me, see me. And all throughout this chapter, he is going to continue to remind us, God came first. God came first. You are infinitely important to him, but trust me, what you actually do every day is not what makes you infinitely important. He's already done it all. Even all the works that he was going to ask man to be a part of, to procreate, to cultivate the earth, did he need man to do that? Absolutely not. And so there is a kind of rest that we are invited into from the very beginning, from our actual physical toil, that what we do day in and day out is not the total sum of who we are. And in fact, we need to be incredibly humble, regardless of whatever it is, construction, teaching, counseling, working in retail, being a pastor, that that work would go on with or without you. And that should be, if it's threatening to you, you check your heart today. If that is a threatening concept to you, if there's something about that that doesn't feel good and freeing, then this word is very much for you today. He's saying there is a rest that you can enter into. There is a rest that you can enter into, that God has gone before you, that God is doing the work with or without you. God is doing the work. Um, there's a quote from a man named Leighton Ford. I'm just going to paraphrase for you. It's, it's rather lengthy. It is book, The Attentive Life. And he, at one point in his life, he's a, he's a much older man now, but it was an incredibly freeing thought for him where he said, you know, when I lay my head down on the pillow, the act of physically going to sleep is a tremendous act of grace of God because every single day we are reminded that we're not God, that we are finite. And he said, and now my habit has become that every time I close my eyes and lay my head on my pillow. I pray to God, let the real work begin. Let the real work begin. We worship a God who does not sleep, who does not slumber. It's so foolish of us to think that somehow, and we do, and I get caught up in it just as much. I think somehow the students of Montreal College are not growing in the Lord because those eight hours I'm sleeping, right? Like he's not doing something on the weekends. Whenever I am not physically there on the ground doing the work, then nothing must be happening. And I'm always amazed to get there on Monday and have a flood of emails. And like, lo and behold, God was, like, people had, were wrestling with God on Saturday night and want to talk to me on Monday. I thought, how could that happen? It was like 1 o'clock in the morning. I was asleep. How could that have possibly happened? And we do that regardless of whatever field we are, if we, if we, are, if we are mothers, if we are teachers, if we are counselors, if we are uh, construction workers, any kind of labor. If we're doing anything, we have a tendency to find our worth in that thing. I say, here it is. This is justifies me. I get up every day, and the first question we ask one another when we meet each other, typically after what's your name, is, what do you do? What do you do? As if, somehow, some way, 
that would be who I am, right? And we buy into that. And so the first kind of rest that he offers up is just a physical rest from your work. To say that God is the one who's doing all this. Don't be fooled. He's allowing you to participate. He's allowing you to be a part of what he's already doing in the world with or without you. There should be a tremendous freedom in that. But our failure or our successes in the work world do not define us in our standing with God. There is something beautiful also in this, in this same creation account, though, that I do think speaks of rest. And it is this idea that when he created man and woman, they were buck naked. And it says, and they did not have any shame. There was no shame. They were literally before God, absolutely naked, absolutely bare, and had no shame. There is a rest that is offered here in the creation story, a rest from our guilty conscience, which way more than anything else is what I want rest from, you know? The constant battle, the constant temptations, the constant failings, the constant, 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 not loving people like I want to, hurting the people I love the most, falling short, wanting to glorify God, not doing it, being like Paul says, oh, what am I going to do with this wicked body? What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I do, right? Rest. There is this beautiful picture of an invitation to come back to this account where Adam and Eve are standing before God. They're buck naked, and they are totally not ashamed, totally unashamed in God's presence. There's an invitation there for that, and we're going to flesh this out a little bit more on, on what that looks like and how, how we get there. The most obvious reference to rest that takes up the majority of chapter 4, though, is this horrific story in Israel's history, where God promised them a very physical rest in a new land. And he says this. this is, Moses is standing on top of a mountain, looking over into the promised land. And he's telling Israel what lies ahead for them in this land. And he says this. The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He will drive out your enemy before you, saying, destroy him. And so Israel will live in safety alone. Jacob's spring is secure in a land of grain and new wine where the heavens drop dew. Blessed are you, O Israel. Who is like you, a people saved by the Lord? He is your shield and your helper and your glorious swords. Your enemies will cower before you and you will trample down their high places. Sounds incredible. But Moses is standing on the top of the mountain telling everybody else in Israel, and he himself isn't going to be allowed to go in. He doesn't get to experience that. The safety and security that the Lord would be his shield and he would stand in his everlasting arms in this new land, Moses forfeited. He forfeited this kind of very much a, a kind of rest in God so you do not have to care for yourself anymore. That was what the promised land was for the people of Israel, is that we will put you in a land. God said, I will find a land for you, and I will shepherd you into that land. And there in that land, no enemies will come against you. You will strike them all down. You will be my people. You will grow. You will flourish. You will be a people who are always cared for physically. You always have clothing, shelter, food, and not just food, but the best food. You will be a rich people. I will love you. I will care for you. And for the very reason that they did not believe him, they didn't get to go in. Because the reason why they don't get to go in, we're told in the scriptures that a scene happens 
at a rock. And you might be familiar with the story, or maybe you're not. And the people of Israel have walked out of Egypt. They're not slaves anymore. They're walking to the promised land, and they get hungry. And they say, Lord, please, give us some food. And he drops manna from the sky. But that's not good enough. And they grumble and complain. They say, well, yeah, that's bread, but we're, we want meat. Okay, there's some quail. They give them quail. They get sick of that. And they said, yeah, but we don't have anything to drink. And it kind of sounds like my kids at the dinner table every night. Just sort of like, oh, oh, keep going, keep going. I really, it does. I understand that mentality. And so they go to Moses, and they're complaining. They're saying, we have no water. We're going to die. We're die of thirst, dehydrate. And, and Moses finally gets frustrated and doesn't give glory to the Lord and just smacks a rock. And the water flows. God says, mm, you grumbling and complaining people, you do not trust me. You do not trust me. Hebrews 4, 3 says, Now we have believed and entered that rest, just as God had said, that I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. They never get to enter his rest because in that same place where the rock is struck, Moses names it, and he names it Massa and Meribah, which means this. The Israelites quarreled, and they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? And so it is this very much of a, a, a phrase, as they often do in Hebrew, where it's a word and it becomes a whole sentence, this idea of not trusting the Lord, and so they quarreled with him. He's bringing him to a place where he says, I promise I'm going to give you this, and they take it into their own hands and say, no, you're not. We do not trust you. And he says, fine. You don't trust me? I'll give you exactly what you want. Do it on your own. And they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. That and that... That's probably the hardest part of this passage for me to wrestle with, is that there is an invitation, and that very word is kind of a scary word for us. It's an invitation. It means I can reject it, right? I wish that the Bible said, if you come to me, I will force you to rest. All of my people will experience rest because they will have no choice. But he doesn't. He invites them. It is an invitation. Those who are tired and weary, come to me if you want to. I'm not going to make you. And we would all sit here right now and very logically say, well, that's ridiculous. I want it and I don't have it, right? I want it and I don't have it. And probably the Israelites would have said the same exact thing. Yes, we do want to go to the promised land. What we said over there about the quail and the water and all those things, that didn't mean we didn't trust you. We just, we were hungry or whatever it is. And we make justifications all the time. Yes, I do want your rest. And God points to our hearts. He says, really? You really want my rest? Then why are you finding rest in that? Why is this your rest? Why are you being justified by this? Why is this giving you rest? Why are you looking for peace and hope and salvation in this and that and that and the other thing? Do not tell me you want my rest. When rest for me is competing with a hundred other things in your heart right now. Where I am the last place you are looking for rest. And at the same time, you're angry with me because I'm not giving it to you. I am giving it to you. I have offered it to you freely. You will not take it. You will not enter it because you're afraid. Because ultimately, our hearts are at a place where they really do not trust him, when we are honest with ourselves. Soren Kierkegaard said one time, he said, it's not that the things of Scripture are so difficult for us to understand. It's that we understand that if we were to follow them, they would ruin us. That's what the problem is. And we know that entering God's rest does not mean a perfect life, 
a perfect marriage, that our kids are never going to rebel again, that uh, we're going to get great grades, that we're going to become beautiful, that we're not going to have addictions and struggles. We, we know it doesn't mean that. And so this absolute surrender to a God who we cannot see becomes an impossibility for us. And so we start to look, like Tim Keller says all the time, for what's on video instead of what's on audio. God's on audio. What's on video? What can I see with my eyes? It's my job. It's my relationships. It's how I look in the mirror. It's what's in my bank account. It's what's sitting in my driveway. Those are the things that I can get my hands on, and I can tell myself if I get more and more and more and more of those things, maybe I'll have more and more and more and more and more rest. And we know experientially that it's just the opposite, that it's just like the Israelites wandering around in the desert, that the one thing that we think is going to bring us rest the quail, the manna, the water is the one thing that causes us to forfeit the real rest that's waiting for us. Throughout all those exhortations, all of those exhortations, still God offers us rest. If I was God, if you were God, the invitation would be no more. But the most beautiful part of chapter 4 of Hebrews is that it concludes with the greatest invitation to rest ever. And is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Where he ends, he says, you disobeyed, you disobeyed, don't disobey, don't disobey, hear his voice, respond, 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 respond. And then there is this beautiful passage that says, for we do not have a high priest that cannot understand us, but one who comes and sympathizes with our weaknesses, knows of our inabilities, knows that we want the rest and at the same time just don't really want to surrender these other things, know that we struggle to obey, want the invitation, want the rest, but at the same time our hearts say, ah, but I want this other thing too. He says, we have a high priest. We have God in the heavens who has come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, walked in your shoes, understands exactly what it's like to be you. And because of your disobedience, your disobedience, your rebellion that kept you from entering the rest, he did something once and for all that is going to open up an invitation for you that you simply cannot reject, is what he's telling these Jewish people. If you turn away from this invitation... There really is no turning back. It's not an invitation to enter a land. It's not an invitation that's just going to say you don't have to work anymore. It is a rest from your own salvation. Jesus goes to the cross, and in his final words, he says what, if you know? It is finished. It is finished. It's such a beautiful picture, and I, and, I, and I think after this week, understanding so much more about this creation account, that it is so much in that spirit of what I think Watchman Nee was trying to capture, this idea that, that the work was really done, that God did the work of creation, and all of it was done, and that man's first act then is to enter into that rest, is to celebrate, and that is not what we want to do. When we come to Christ... We try to bring our very best, and whatever we don't have, we try as quickly as we can to make up for. Our first act of coming to Christ, for so many of us, is not, good job, Jesus. Good job, Jesus. It is much more like, thank you, and trust me, I am going to make this up to you. Trust me. Okay, I know I can't right now. I don't have everything together, but you wait and see. You wait and see. I'm starting to climb the ladder. I'm going to get there. I'm going to be exactly who you want me to be. I'm going to become the person that you died for. And Jesus says, you are the person I died for. You're a mess. You're a failure. You're a person who doesn't want rest and wants it at the same time. You're a person who has been trying and trying and trying to justify yourself, to save yourself through works and works righteousness. And he said, I know exactly who you are. 
your mess, your sinner, your condemned person, your person who can't go into the promised land. And trust me, on the cross, it's finished. I did it. I did it all. I did everything. Your first act, your act of worship, is to enter into this rest now. Just stop. The greatest worship we can give to God is a constant acknowledgement that we cannot save ourselves. That we would stop trying to save ourselves. That we would, we would let go of those things that we've allowed to creep into our lives that have taken the place of the one who really did die for us. Right? If it's our jobs, if it's our relationships, if it's our kids, it's bank account, whatever it might be for us, that is the manna and the quail in our life that we constantly turn to instead. That's entering his rest. That's not easy to do. It is not easy to do. Um, I wish uh, um, that I could stand up here today. It's one of those weeks, like it typically is, where I could say, and this is how it is for me, and this is what I do every day to enter his rest. It's not true. When I was talking to Ben this morning about what I was going to be preaching on, um, I'm glad he was this honest, and uh, he smiled, and he said something effective like, how's that work for you? He said, you kind of seem like a pretty energetic guy. I'm like, <laughs> not a lot of rest in your life. <laughs> Which is very honest and very true, and my wife would agree with that. It's, it's hard for me to stand up here and to talk about resting in God. So, what I did instead is I invited a couple other people to come who do know what about uh, what it says to to rest in Him. Um, the first is Lauren Scowcroft, who is a, a student at Montreal College, and she's um, she's in my preaching class. And we had an exercise the other day where they needed to come and talk about their presuppositions, right? It's a fancy word for, like, what you think about God and the scriptures and social issues. And so we wanted to put those all on the table so that when we come to the text, we all know that, like, we've got a certain slant on things, okay? And we're going to confess those things. And so everybody got up and did their thing. And, and Lauren was the last one. We ran out of time, and she didn't get to do it. And I said, that's all right. You can start us off next class. Just let it be kind of a devotional thing. Um, and it was incredible. So I'm not going to say too much more about it, except when I heard Lauren speak, I thought, that's the kind of rest I want. So I'm going to move forward. everyone hear me? Um, Alright, I'm just going to read a journal entry that was at the end of what I talked about the other day. Um, okay, try to imagine a suit of armor. This armor is incredibly strong and you have worn it all your life. You put it on in a time of insecurity and stability and danger. It protected you and helped you to survive scarring battles. You became so used to having the suit on that you became attached to it, often forgetting it was there. Time has passed, and you met someone who changed your life. He provided protection and compassion, and even through the though the turmoil has died down, there is no guarantee of peace. He tells you, it is time to remove your armor, and you reply, I don't even remember how, but I will if you help me. You see, I've grown so accustomed to this armor that I did not even realize how it was affecting my life, creating blind spots, preventing touch, and limiting mobility, and the weight of it all. I had grown so accustomed to bearing this weight that I didn't even see how much it's holding me back from purposes and tasks that are planned for me by him, for him, and through him. 
Now imagine taking off the suit of armor, slowly, of course, piece by piece. There is a feeling of hope and joy, yet you are still just as terrified. Then you breathe. It's the deepest, most fulfilling breath you have ever experienced. And then you are wholly embraced by your Heavenly Father and find rest. It was um, very much that, that imagery of um, what it might be like in my life and in your life uh, to finally take a deep breath, to take a deep breath, and, and to not be afraid to take that deep breath and to realize you're in the loving arms of your Father. So that's a picture of rest, and it's not, um, it's not real practical. I wish it was a little more practical. I wish it was uh, like a three steps to taking off your armor book or something, but um, it's identifying at first. It's admitting at first in Lauren's life, in my life. Man, I got a lot of stuff on in between me and you. And uh, So I don't want to get too emotional today. Uh, the other testimony we have today is from, uh, is from Ben. You can come on up, Ben. He's also going to share his story of um, working from saving himself to finding salvation in Jesus. Yeah. Is this on? Hello. No problem. Hello. Hey, guys. Um, um, well, I suppose my testimony starts from when I was born. Um, I was um, put. Uh, I was. Um, I was. I was born and I was baptized Catholic, um, and I uh, was put into foster care at age three. Just to give you a little bit of a background, and um, then uh, later on in my life, at age eleven, I was adopted um, by an upper to middle class family coming from a, a relative broken home and, um, of abuse and neglect. And, um, and throughout my life, I just have felt like I'd always been waiting to, to grow old, to, um, to become 18 so I could go and start my life. Like many of you might have, might have felt in your life. Um, but for me, it was, uh, I just had no, no feeling or sense of, of peace. And I, I think it's, couldn't be more appropriate that we have this message today um, in that uh, just throughout my life I feel like I've just felt so incredibly anxious that I've never really had any true sense of identity and um, that led me to go throughout my life just pretty much just a class clown and just uh, always trying to do everything for a laugh and uh, you know struggling with identity and struggling with you know what it is what do I want to wear how you know and, and it's just and it's just, it was such a, I feel like a hard struggle to find eventually some rest. Um, and uh, uh, so I went through a number of schools. I uh, was asked to leave a number of schools. Never officially, I don't think, got kicked out. But I, I went through a number of schools. Um, uh, in high school, I went through about three of them. And I went to military school, went to... Uh, a uh, boarding school, a therapeutic boarding school, and uh, and stuff like that. But uh, throughout that time, I, I was, like I said, I was Catholic. I had been to uh, been going to church every Sunday, and because uh, that's just what my family did. Um, 
No, Jesus wasn't a, a common name in the family. We didn't often talk about spirituality or Christ and or anything like that. And I think that definitely had uh, something to do with uh, a decision I had eventually made to uh, give away everything I had and then and uh, to become homeless. Last year I did that um, because, uh, well, first of all, I, I was I was here in North Carolina. Um, uh, staying with a cousin of mine who was heavily addicted to alcohol and and and, uh, and marijuana and just uh, so um, I I feel like just my whole life I just kind of felt like I was alone um, and so that probably played a huge role in, in doing what I did um, but I, I was working I was working a job I was I was doing in carpentry I was doing landscaping and stuff and I just realized that nine to five just wasn't wasn't what I wanted to do, and for what reason, uh, other than just to work, and other than, you know, I've always been told that, you know, stability was the key to life, and, and that had to do with finances, and um, um, and I don't know, maybe there's some psychological reason as well that had to do with just, you know, growing up, starting off um, homeless, like my mom, my biological mother was, was homeless, and um, so I, maybe there was some reverting back to what, you know, felt comfortable, where I had felt initially accepted. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I kind of s- go through my mind often trying to figure out what that was all about, but uh, it's not truly that important when it comes down to uh, my discovery or just coming back to Jesus Christ. It, it had to do with just, I had to, I feel like, just give it all up. And, um, uh so I did that, and for the first part of my um, time uh, homeless, um, and I should mention that it, it, it came at a time where it couldn't have been any more convenient, too. I'd just gotten in a, in a car crash. I owed maybe $5,700 for that eventually. Uh, and so um, I was just like, well, no more job, no anything. Okay. Here we go. And uh, um, so, yeah, I was sick of that. But also, uh, largely what influenced my uh, decision to do that was uh, the notebook. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the notebook. But uh, I had I had once at one point felt I had experienced what true love was. And, um, and that was at a, a residential treatment center that I had been to. And I had met a girl, and it was, it was, it was awesome, you guys. It was really the best experience I feel like I've ever had in terms of relationship. And then also having that same experience, um, those same feelings, um, which, which I call, I feel like the Holy Spirit, definitely Holy Spirit was um, in those relationships that I'd had at that treatment center. And it was very wholesome. And at, at, at one point, you know, that was the one point in my life I felt like I had a true wholesome sense of self and, and real authentic relationships. And that poured over into my relationships with my my mother and father eventually, but that broke, that broke eventually, and uh, um, I realized that uh, you know I really am. When it comes down to this world, we're in it by ourselves. We're here, and we have one opportunity, as far as we know, um, to do what it is that we want to do. It's just to try to see what we can do by ourselves. Um, how strong could we be? And another influence was. Uh, and um, well, let me just explain that influence. Uh, so I had met that girl, and we'd always talked about coming back together. And uh, we always, you know, we talked for about four or five years. I really was hung up on this girl, 
And um, um, eventually, I, I, before I went homeless, I, I gave away, I, I sold some stuff so I could go see her. And then eventually, I got there, and she was just like, hey, how you doing? And I was just like, hey, you know, I'm here. Let's, just, let's do this, <laughs> you know, and let's get started. But uh, it wasn't like that. She's just like, I had to force it out of her to say directly that, you know, I never want to see you again. And I was okay, you know, and I wrote her one last letter. I remember crying on the way back to North Carolina, just driving. And I, I you know, I had to, I had to work at labor. I was, maybe I was upset too. I mean, I really, I probably was. I had to work at labor ready to get enough money to come back and stuff like that. And uh, I had to sell some other stuff, um, a fleet, a flea market. And, um, but anyway, so I came back and my hope was to, uh, beyond just being sick and tired and not having that rest, I was, um, uh, I just, I thought that if I had become that wholesome person that I once was, that true love would come back to me, eventually find me. And, um, and in a way, you know what, it, it absolutely did. It absolutely did. And it's not in the way that I thought it would um, with a girl, but it was with Jesus Christ. And um, it was in the, the love and rest of God. And that is the truth. It's uh, God is amazing. God is amazing, and it's, it's you don't need anything for it. You don't need anything at all. And um, I am I am just really thankful that God has come back. I mean, He's never left. You know. And I don't know if any of you guys have ever felt like you just you've always had something, but you never knew. You never, you never, I don't know if you acknowledged it or just gave your time, yourself time to rest. You know, just give yourself a break. Um, stop trying to push so hard because we don't need to. We don't need to. And, and I like, I don't remember your name, but I like what you said about that armor and everything because we can have that. And I definitely had experienced that for, for sure, for sure. The Holy Spirit and all it's, I feel, is more purely than I ever had while I was, um, homeless, and at certain points more than others, different days more than others, um, but uh, I started out just trying to figure out what is it, what it is, who I am, kind of, what was it, when am I hungry? I mean, I struggled throughout my life just knowing, feeling so anxious, I didn't even know when I, when I was hungry, or I, you know, or if I was full, like, I mean, it was, it was discouraging a lot of times, you guys, like, just not knowing, like, you know, just eating what everybody else ate, because that's what you thought you should eat, you know, and it's like, you do these things because you think you should instead of because what God wants you to do, you know, because of why, because of the Holy Spirit telling you to do what it is you're supposed to do, which is really what gives us our authentic peace and our authentic life. And that's what I was out to discover. That's what I was out for, truth, love, and peace. And um, so it was more of a spiritual journey than it was saying I had nowhere else to go. Um, and I, I definitely want to acknowledge that because I know my mom. I, I told my mom I was going to be talking up here and telling everybody about my experience, and she was like, "Well, you didn't, you didn't have to be homeless." <laughs> and I'm like, "Mom, you know what? I'll make sure to tell them that because I, my, because my mom, you know, I love my mom. I love my mom so much, and and my mom and I have grown closer ever since, and and I just now I'm a, I'm being able to feel free." to really be able to listen and decipher the truth from the, from the untruth. Um, and, and that's been more than, worth more than anything in the world. 
because I can't tell you how discouraging it was just growing up talking to my mom and just having these arguments about nothing. Ketchup. I don't know. I don't like that. Don't get that. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but <laughs> it's, uh, you know, we could fight about anything, and, and it's, it's, now, it's now really helped me just to open up my ears to listen to God, and just really, when, when I'm, when I'm fe- I know you said that you weren't going to come up here and just tell, you weren't going to be able to say, this is what I do, but honestly, I think that silence helps. Silence, when you don't know what to do, just be silent. And, and try and just listen to what God is saying. Because all he speaks so, so many different ways. And I know he does, and I, I'm sure the majority of you, if not all of you, have experienced that in some shape or form. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I just started out just uh, trying to get to understand, you know, what am I feeling? And I'd go to sleep when I was tired. I'd go rest in the woods, do something at the Audible Garden. I don't know if you guys have been there, but that was a fun place of mine. I'd just go sleep. Um, and then, you know, I stayed at the homeless shelter. I uh, uh, volunteered for the first two to three months or so, pretty uh, religiously. And then eventually I got to reading this book by John Bradshaw called Healing the Shame That Binds You. And uh, that was one of my definitely God's God's blessings for me. Um, so that I would be able to fully see him. It was just one of his tools that he was using. And I, I can't praise God enough and just thank God for that um, because I studied that book for a good two months. And in the end, man, I can tell you, I, if, if I were to read that book again, I'd read the last part first because it talks about spiritual bankruptcy. And that's really just what happened. And Bradshaw, if any of you guys have heard of him, he studied in the seminary. To be, he was going to become a priest. He eventually got married, but he was going to become a priest. And he's very, very much Christian, and uh, that's what it came back down to for him. And and it's what spoke to me the most, and um, it's what works. <laughs> uh, I don't want to make it sound like it's step one, two, three, but, it, man, it, it's acceptance, bam, and come back to Jesus, there it is. And that's pretty much how it worked in the end. And uh, so thanks, guys, for listening. Thanks a lot. Um, so we're going to prepare now to take communion together. This is the thought that I want to end on. Um, certainly, I would be unfaithful to the text if I didn't speak honestly to you about the other theme running through this chapter, which is, if you hear his voice today, 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 don't harden your heart. And the very clear implication there is that at some point, your heart could be so hard you wouldn't hear the invitation for rest anymore. The author would not need to say that if there wasn't a very real, literal danger that you would be here, be some other church, be some other place, at dinner with friends, and hear the invitation to rest and not even want it anymore. So today, if you've heard something today, something about releasing the armor that bags you down, you heard something today in Ben's story about admitting that you're spiritually bankrupt and you want freedom. If you hear him today saying, come to my rest, 
And there's something you need to let go of, something you need to lay down, something you need to confess, something you need to make amends with, whatever that might be, whatever it is you need to stop doing to enter his rest. He says, do it today. It's not guaranteed that tomorrow the invitation will come again. 